We're looking this morning at John chapter 20, and we are reading verses 24, and for the sake of context, let's read down to verse 31. You'll find that on page 907. If you're using a copy of the Church Bible, I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning. John 20, beginning in verse 24, and we're going to read down to verse 31. Let me again just very briefly pray for us before we come to the preaching of God's Word. Father in heaven, we pray that you would send forth your word with all of the clarity and all of the converting power uh, with which you invest it by your spirit. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to take the word and to work it in us, to open our eyes, to see your son in all of his resurrection glory. We pray, our God, that you would remove from us all unbelief. We pray that you would shatter hard hearts. We pray that you would... Um, renew our minds this morning. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we would see you before us as risen and reigning as the Savior of the church. And so, Lord Jesus, please bless the ministry of your word and make us attentive, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John 20, beginning in verse 24. John is bringing this great gospel record to a close, and now he says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, or Didymus, which just means the twin, as does Thomas, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's a bold statement, by the way, by one of Jesus's intimate disciples. I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen And yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the wonderful things about Scripture, and one of the things maybe we haven't given ourselves enough uh, time meditating on, is that the Bible presents the disciples as very different people. While there is one message of salvation, while there is one path, one way, one message, one goal, the Bible paints the disciples as very different individuals. It shows the spectrum on which uh, their personalities fall. It shows us all of their different uh, proclivities. And here, as we look at Thomas this morning, we see one of the disciples we know very little about. Thomas only uh, shows up in the Gospel of John three times. Uh, He seems to be a very quiet disciple. When he speaks, you don't expect it. It's one of the interesting things about Thomas. Whenever he speaks, whether it is in John 11, when uh, Jesus gets word that Lazarus has died, and he has delayed purposely and allowed Lazarus to die, and then when Jesus finally says, we're going to go, Let's go awake Lazarus, Thomas says to the other disciples. Let's go with him and die. He was sort of an Eeyore type. He said, he was a pessimist. He said, 
let's go with him and die. You don't expect Thomas to speak. Uh, You expect Peter to say foolish things. But Thomas says that there. And then in John 14, uh, we find Thomas immediately after Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Thomas unexpectedly says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And that's the second time that he speaks. And then here John brings it full circle to the post-resurrection account where Jesus is revealing himself to Thomas. And Thomas is unbelieving. He is an obstinate unbelief. Well, this morning we're going to see three things as we consider this really precious interaction between the risen Christ and Thomas, because it's one of those accounts that stirs our faith so much. Jesus gives us this account to really build our faith in him. And we're going to see three things. First, we're going to consider everything John has to say against the background of Thomas's unbelief. Secondly, we're going to consider Jesus's revelation of himself. And then finally, Jesus's pronouncement. Thomas's unbelief, Jesus's revelation about himself, and then finally Jesus's pronouncement. Well, as I've noted already, Thomas was slow to believe. He was obstinate, Calvin says. Um, We have sometimes mistakenly called him Doubting Thomas, and we've talked about how people have doubts, and you can have intellectual skepticism, and people want empirical knowledge, and so we've said, well, Thomas has this moment of doubting, but actually Thomas is unwilling to believe. Thomas is obstinate. Thomas has taken his eyes off of Christ. He has closed his ears to the scripture. Everything that he heard from Jesus for three years, he has laid aside. John Calvin says he was not only slow and reluctant to believe, but even obstinate. The same thing happens to all who are so devoted to themselves that they leave no room for the word of God. It's actually a scathing remark about Thomas. Calvin doesn't go soft on Thomas's error here. Thomas had every reason to believe. The faith that Thomas is rejecting, the unbelief he's living in, is not, uh, as some people tend to think, they think faith is sort of uh, conjecture detached from reason. The Bible actually carves out a path and says that true faith is grounded on empirical data. Jesus really rose from the dead. People really saw him. He was a historical being. He lived in time and space, just like you and me. He walked on this planet. And Thomas denied that and refused to believe. Now, um, it's very interesting. Thomas's unbelief has a root, and you have to listen very carefully. Thomas refused to meet with the other disciples after the resurrection. Notice John has given us these resurrection accounts, and the first one in this chapter is Jesus' appearance to Mary Magdalene outside the tomb. There's actually a contrast there. She tries to hold on to Jesus. Thomas says, I must touch him. Jesus says to Mary, don't cling to me, and says to Thomas, touch me. There's, There's a contrast here, and yet notice That verse 19, John says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, notice that our passage tells us that Thomas wasn't with them. Notice verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Eric Alexander preached a sermon once called um, The Man Who Skipped Evening Worship. He skipped the evening service, and he hardens his heart in unbelief because he has moved himself away from the assembly. It's actually a very potent point 
that John is highlighting when the disciples are together, they are building each other up in the faith of Christ. They are building each other up in the truth, but as soon as they separate from one another, they begin to doubt, they begin to harden their hearts in obstinate unbelief. It's a lesson to us. It's a warning that we don't follow that example. We'll notice that Thomas doubted the resurrection because he was away from the other disciples, and those doubts are multiplying as we don't know if he went home. We don't know if Thomas was on the brink of apostasy. You know, it's likely we can speculate that Jesus has been crucified. Thomas has given up three years of his life to follow Jesus. And all of a sudden, his hopes are dashed. And I like to think that Thomas went home and he's on the brink of walking away from the faith altogether. He's left the other disciples. He's thinking, what am I going to do now? I've wasted three years of my life. This was foolish. This was the worst decision I ever made. Following this man was the worst decision I ever made. And so he is away, and yet notice that he comes back. He does the right thing. Verse 24, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. But notice verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. At some point, Thomas had a, a change of mind, and he realized he needed to be with the people of God. He needed to be under the ministry of the word. He needed to be in fellowship with the other believers. And he goes and experiences this incredible restoration. Now, there is a word here for us, and it's an important word. Um, the Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We like to wander. All of us are just like Thomas by nature. We like to go away from the people of God. We like to go away from the word of God. We like to go and do our own thing. We like to decline everything in the spiritual life in one sense, apart from the grace of God, tends to entropy. Everything uh, goes away from the center. And here John is teaching us that the center is the disciples gathered together in worship. Thomas now with them, still with his unbelieving heart, but ready and in a place to be restored by Jesus. And a very important word for us this morning, Jesus restores his people in the gathered assembly. Jesus doesn't go to Thomas's house and appear. He could have done this. He could have met with Thomas in his room alone. John still could have given us that account by the Holy Spirit. He could have met with him. He could have, he could have had the same interaction, but Jesus meets with his people in gathered worship, and he restores his people in the assembly of the saints and he does it every Lord's Day. Notice that this is the beginning of that multiplication of the post-resurrection accounts where Jesus appears to his disciples every eighth day. The eighth day, the day of new creation, the first day of the week, the day of worship, the risen Jesus is coming now. Now, as we consider Thomas's unbelief, and, and it's a bold statement. I mean, think about this. He's, it, it would be like one of you today who's a professing believer saying to a little band outside, you know, I'm not going to believe anymore. It's a pretty bold statement. He says to them, I'm not going to believe unless I see. I don't care what he said. I don't care how many miracles I've seen him do. He saw all the miracles. He saw it all. This is how obstinate our hearts are by nature. He saw everything. And he said verbally to the other disciples, I will not believe unless I see. Now notice as Jesus comes to reveal himself and to restore Thomas, uh, we see that 
the risen Jesus is full of love for his wavering people. There's a really beautiful picture here. Um, He doesn't write Thomas off. He doesn't leave Thomas alone. And let me say this this morning. It is a good thing for us that Jesus doesn't leave us alone. Because if Jesus left you alone, you would be done. Um, It is the manifestation of his loving heart that he goes after his lost sheep. He goes after the wavering. He reserves a sight of his wounds for his beloved disciples, even in the moment of their greatest weakness. Is that not remarkable? Richard Sibbs, uh, the great Puritan, said the same love that drew Jesus from heaven to the womb of the virgin and from the womb of the virgin to the cross and from the cross to the grave moved him to reveal himself after he was risen to them that wonderfully loved him. It was the same love that drove him forward. The risen Jesus is not going to give up on his people. That is good news to us on this Resurrection Sunday. The risen Jesus will not give up on his people. He will not allow his people to continue living in unbelief. He will not allow them to waver forever. He doesn't cast them off like he does Judas. We'll notice that as Jesus comes to reveal, the first thing that we see is that he knows everything. Now, the last thought was comforting. This one is less comforting. Uh, We sometimes foolishly convince ourselves that Jesus doesn't know what I'm thinking, saying, or doing. He knows everything. He knows about the interaction between Thomas and the other disciples. That's why he comes. Jesus knows every single thing you have ever thought, said, or done. It doesn't matter how private, how short, how brief. He knows it all. He knows all of our thoughts. He knows every word. And he comes to restore by showing that he is the Christ who knows all things. That's good news for us. He knows exactly what we need. He knows when we're in bad places. He knows when we are not doing well spiritually, and he knows to come and restore us. He knows who to bring alongside us. He knows just what to speak to us. And notice that John is highlighting for us that uh, Jesus knows all these thoughts, and he comes to rescue Thomas. Now, we're going to have this great picture here in a minute with Jesus holding out his hands and, and that the greatest of thoughts, telling Thomas to put his hand into his side so that he would know for real that this is the flesh and blood risen Savior. Um, there is, though, something we have to consider first. You know, Jesus bears the marks of the suffering he endured for our sins forever. Before he shows them to Thomas, he still has them. Jesus bears those marks forever. Oz Guinness uh, the great apologist of the 20th century, said Christianity is the only religion whose God bears the scars of evil. I want that to just sink in this morning. There is no other religion whose God bears the scars of evil. Dorothy Sayre, the great literary uh, novelist, said, whatever else we may say about suffering in life, of this much we can be sure God took his own medicine. He took all of the suffering on himself, and the God-man, Jesus, bears the marks of suffering and evil and fallenness in his body forever, even in a glorified state. He's glorified. He's risen. He can't die again. He is the risen Christ, never able to die again, and he bears in his body 
the marks of all of the suffering and fallenness of this world so that you and I never get to say, no one understands. If you ever catch yourself saying, no one understands what I'm going through, if you ever find yourself wavering in unbelief and saying, how could a good God allow suffering in this world? How could a good God allow children to suffer? Remember, that good God took the scars of evil in his body on the tree. So you never get to say, he doesn't understand. We never get to say, no one relates, and we never get to say it's not fair. Here is the risen Jesus, magnificently coming to restore with his hands and his side. You know, it's very interesting to me. We're celebrating the resurrection in a special way today, even though we should celebrate it every Sunday and every day, because he's always risen. We don't wait for him to rise again. Um, But on this Resurrection Sunday, at this moment when Jesus reveals himself, when he comes to restore Thomas, the risen Jesus doesn't just point to his resurrection, he points back to the cross. Isn't that fascinating? What is going to restore an obstinate, unbelieving heart? A sight of the cross will. A sight of Christ's crucified will. Even the risen Jesus points back to what is the epicenter, and he says, look at the cross. The Apostle Paul, when he comes to rebuke the Galatians for receiving false doctrine, he says, uh, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Literally, who has cast a spell over you like a snake being enchanted? He says, all of this is because you've taken your eyes off of Christ crucified. He said, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. We'll notice that Thomas has made that great statement. I will never believe unless I see. I will never believe unless I touch. You know, Thomas makes this statement. It's really amazing to see the contrast and the way Jesus restores him. He doesn't just say, unless I see. You know, that's usually what most scientific types say. They say, uh, well, if I could just see, then I would believe. For Thomas, even seeing wouldn't be enough. He says, even if he saw Jesus in front of him, he says, unless I put my hand in the nail prints, unless I put my finger in the nail print, unless I put my hand in his side, I will never believe. You know, the reality is, even though Jesus condescends to Thomas and he helps him and he he gives him this visible aid and he stoops to the weakness of Thomas, there's a sense where Thomas wouldn't believe uh, even by touching. It's not Thomas touching that enables him to believe. Remember the account Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man's in Hades, and he says to Abraham, Father Abraham, if if I have five brothers and they're going to perish, and if you just send somebody back from the dead, they'll believe. And Abraham says, no, even if one should rise from the dead, They won't believe because they have the scripture. They have Moses and the prophets. If they won't hear them, they won't believe even if one rises from the dead. Nevertheless, Jesus comes to Thomas and he condescends to him and he brings Thomas to a place of understanding what is central, what is real, what is true, what is right. Remember, very interesting, and I think we're meant to tie together the three instances in which we find Thomas in the Gospel of John. The first time, let's go with him and die. 
The second time, he says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And the third time, he finally gets it. And he remembers everything that Jesus taught him. And he remembers that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Um, It's as if at that moment, Thomas's mind and heart are flooded by the Holy Spirit. And everything that Jesus taught him, everything he knew from the scriptures, everything he saw done, everything that he was now seeing in front of him, it flooded his mind and heart. That's what happens when you're converted. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God shines into the hearts of men and women. And everything that Thomas was told comes to light. You know, Thomas makes this great statement at the Revelation. He doesn't say, and this is very interesting, because if you're not a believer, I want this to really sink in this morning. When Jesus appears, Thomas doesn't say, hey man, it's you. He doesn't, he doesn't just treat him like a buddy. He doesn't... He doesn't um, He doesn't say, hey, Jesus, great to have you back. He says, my Lord and my God. It's this spontaneous overflow. He realizes he touches the humanity of Jesus and he worships the deity. Augustine said he puts his hand out on the humanity. He doesn't see the deity and the humanity. He touches the humanity and God shows him the deity. He shows him that he is so much more than a person. Um, The Jehovah's Witnesses very foolishly say that Thomas cusses here. My Lord, my God, can't believe this. Uh, that's, that's the most absurd thing ever. Remember, this gospel opens with that great declaration, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And here at the end of the gospel, Thomas, the doubter, the unbeliever, the one who has refused to believe. I mean, this is remarkable. Moments before this, He is on the brink of apostasy, and now he's making one of the greatest affirmations about who Jesus is in all the Gospels. Now that shows that when Jesus reveals us, reveals himself to us and restores us, that he can make us instantly useful. It's this beautiful picture, isn't it? How many people have come to faith in Jesus Christ because Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God? Um. It doesn't matter how backslidden you've been. It doesn't matter if you've been living in deep, dark sin. If Jesus is coming to restore you, he can make you instantly useful. Beautiful picture in the revelation of the Lord Jesus. Thomas goes from unbelief to worship. Isn't that the goal? It's not, Jesus's goal is not to reveal himself to you so that you can go and then you can just have a private relationship with Jesus and it's about you and Jesus and you make statements and say things like, you know, I don't need the church, I just need Jesus. That's foolish, you need the church. That's where Jesus meets with people. And Thomas goes from unbelief to worship. It's not just a private faith, it's not a personal thing. He's not, he, doesn't, he doesn't come back and say, yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think maybe I was wrong about Jesus and and just tucks it away. He says, my Lord and my God. Well, notice, thirdly, Jesus gives that great pronouncement. No sooner has um, the risen Christ restored Thomas that Jesus says to him in verse 29, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. You know, a faith built on seeing 
is not worth much. Faith that's built on seeing is not faith, the Bible will say. It's sight. Um, John Calvin, in his commentary on this, says that what biblical faith does is it enables the believer to reach up into heaven and pull down the realities of heaven before their eyes, even though they can't see it. Um, That's what Thomas has done. He's seen, he's believed supernaturally. Now Jesus says, more blessed or blessed are those who have not seen and yet who have believed. Um, There are two words here to us this morning. The first word is to the unbeliever. Um, This is a very unique passage of scripture because what it does is it holds out someone who was close to Jesus, who had heard a lot about Jesus, who had been with the inner band of disciples, who had been with Jesus everywhere he went, who knew all his miracles. Um, It says something to the church member who has sat week in and week out under the ministry of the word and yet who doesn't believe for whatever reason. Um, Maybe it's because you're listening to a thousand voices from outside because remember when Thomas separates, he caves. Um, there's a word here, though. The Lord Jesus comes and he restores unbelievers. He, he, he restores wavering believers. He reserves a sight of his wound for his friends. And then there's a word for believers. You know, John Calvin says that this passage, it, it's really written so that the faith of the godly may be more fully confirmed. So that if you believe, you believe Jesus is risen, you're not wavering like Thomas. Maybe you have a strong faith and you say, I believe, I'm trusting him, I cry out to him, I'm worshiping him, I profess him, I don't want to deny him, I want to do those things that are pleasing to him, I love his word. Thomas's unbelief confirms the faith of believers. Jesus further gives evidence of his resurrection in this account so that you and I may hold on to him more tightly. Now, I want to say this at the close of our message this morning. There is nothing that we need so much. I noted at the beginning of the sermon that in the Bible, different disciples look different. You and I are in different places in life. We certainly have different bank accounts, houses, backgrounds, upbringings, uh, maybe even church experiences. We all come from different backgrounds. We have different personalities, and yet everybody needs the same thing. Isn't that marvelous? The thing that Thomas needs, the other disciples need, I need, and you need. And Jesus still comes, and he still stands in the midst of his people, and not in a physical way, but in a spiritual way, he stands and he holds out his hands every time the gospel is preached, every time the cross is preached, every time Christ is preached, he is standing there and he's saying, Don't be disbelieving, be believing. He says, notice what he says to Thomas. Very clearly in verse 27, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus says that to us this morning. He says, wherever you are in life, whatever's going on inside you, whatever thoughts you have about Jesus, of this much we can be sure it makes little difference whether you have a soft and believing heart or a hard heart, an unbelieving heart, Jesus is risen. Your unbelief doesn't change that at all. 
and he is coming to restore his people. Now, I can think of no better message that any of us need than that this morning. Jesus wants to restore you, whoever you are, wherever you are in life, whatever you're going through. No matter how strong or weak your faith is, Jesus comes and he says, do not be disbelieving, be believing. Um, I hope that as we consider this together and we look at this short passage and we note, note just as we close that John gives this subscription in verse 30. He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the end goal. The scripture is sufficient. It's sufficient. You know, I'm going to say this also this morning. This is like my third ending to the short sermon. Um, I think everybody really knows. I've witnessed to a lot of people over the years. And the difference is, uh, the, the objections are all varied. Um, sometimes they are just full of disdain for Jesus and the Bible. Sometimes they're more innocent. Um, sometimes people are just sort of ignorant. They don't really know what the Bible says. They haven't been reading scripture. They don't really know all the facts. And so they're kind of just suppressing the truth nonchalantly. But I am convinced that at the end of the day, everybody knows that Jesus is risen from the dead. Um, Louis C.K., as wicked as he is, um, had a recent stand-up thing where he says, look, let's just be honest, Christians win. He said the whole of human history is structured by before Christ and after Christ. And people were laughing nervously. And, And what he was saying is everybody knows Everybody knows this world was created by Jesus. They may suppress it. They may hate it. They may deny it. And the resurrection is absolute fact, verified 50,000 ways over. They saw him. The soldiers knew. Somebody didn't steal the body. It's every kind of proof imaginable. The problem is not that there's not enough proof. The problem is the obstinate hardness of our hearts and unwillingness to believe. Now, I'm going to say this again this morning. Wherever you are in life, Jesus wants you to believe in him, to put your hands out and to own him for yourself. Listen, please listen to me. If you will own the Lord Jesus, you will be with him forever. Um, If you don't want this to be true, Pray that God will change your heart and make you want it to be true because it is true. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would give us soft and believing hearts. Lord Jesus, we thank you for every word by which you are revealed in Scripture. And we thank you that you never give up on those that belong to you. We thank you that though we may waver, And though there are times when we harden our hearts in unbelief, yet you come and you condescend and you restore us because of your love for us. We pray this morning that if there are any that don't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. That, Lord Jesus, you would do for that one what you did for Thomas. We pray that you would restore us and make us strong in the faith. 
We pray that we would be a people that walk by faith and not by sight. We pray that you would grant us all of your blessings this morning and increase our faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.